in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, one of the great passages uh, on the gospel in all of Scripture. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is establishing something that he has already clearly set forth in Romans 3 as we read earlier today. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our father according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we find the gospel so counterintuitive to our fallen nature. It is hard for us to fully grasp the gospel because it's not natural to us. We have the law written on our hearts and because of our sinfulness, we misapply the law. We are legalists by nature. And the gospel that comes to us through your son Jesus is the antithesis of legalism. I pray, Lord, today for the Christians that this text would reignite and fuel their heart for Jesus and your mercy to us through him. And I pray, Lord, for those who have not yet believed in the Son, that this text would be used by you to bring an increase, to bring regeneration, to bring justification to them. We pray, Lord, that your your people today that are gathered here today in the providence of things would have ears to hear. I pray that your preacher, the weak that he is, could preach in power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, tomorrow is a key day in the Protestant calendar. And in particular, we remember October the 31st, 1517. Uh, 499 years ago. Next year will be the 500th anniversary of this date. A date that uh, if it had not happened, the events of that day, we would not be here today. It was All Hallows Eve, the night before All Saints Day. And on that day, the pilgrims, the people, were to file past the relics of the saints. What were the relics? Physical remains or things they had worn. And they appealed to the excess merits of the saints, that is the, the righteous acts and deeds of the saints that went above and beyond that was necessary in order to go to heaven. They appealed to these excess merits in hopes of satisfying God's righteous demands. Every relic was endowed by the Pope with an indulgence. 
for the reduction of time in purgatory. For example, in Wittenberg. Wittenberg was a city where Martin Luther, uh, we sang his hymn this morning. It was the place where he lived. It was also the place where he taught and preached. The relics in Wittenberg included one piece of Jesus' swaddling clothes. Thirteen pieces from his crib when he was a baby. One wisp of, of straw uh, from that manger scene, if you will. One piece of the gold brought by the wise men. Three pieces of the myrrh. One strand of Jesus' beard. One of the nails driven into his hands when he was on the cross. One piece of bread from the Last Supper. One piece of stone where Jesus stood before he ascended to the Father. And one twig from the burning bush when Moses was encountered by Yahweh. Now this occurred every year. But this year was different. There were a couple of reasons for that. First of all, there was a monk. His name was Martin Luther. And his studies were leading him to conclusions that were somewhat different. Very different, in fact, from the Catholic Church. Prior to this, what every good works you could do in order to earn heaven, Martin Luther sought to do. In his own words, he said, I kept on... And if I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils and prayers and reading and every other work. He went to confession for up to six hours a day. It wore the priest out. He would take the Ten Commandments and the the seven deadly sins and he would use them as a grid to help him remind himself of all the sins that he committed. Uh, He recognized or he believed that... In order for a sin to be forgiven, it had to be confessed. But in order for it to be confessed, it had to be remembered. And if it wasn't remembered, it couldn't be confessed. And if it wasn't confessed, it would not be forgiven. The purpose of his religious striving was to compensate for his sin. Something he was very aware of. But he could never feel the ledger was balanced. Again, his words, he said, This word... That is the the gospels, the gospel itself. This word is too high and too hard that anyone should fulfill it. This is proved not merely by our Lord's words, but by our own experience. You take any upright man, he will get along very nicely with those who do not provoke him. But let someone offer only the slightest irritation... And he will flare up in anger. You resonate with that? Flesh and blood cannot rise above it. That was the first reason this particular year, 1517, was different. But there was a second reason. There was an artist who was painting a ceiling. And it wasn't just any artist. His name was Michelangelo. And he didn't come cheap. And it wasn't just any ceiling. It was the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, Pope Leo X had very extravagant taste in art. 
And it was all but bankrupting the Vatican treasury. Meanwhile, there was a guy named Albert of Brandenburg who was seeking to procure a third bishop's position, a position of a bishop. And all the prestige that came with that, he had already procured two at too young an age. And now he wanted this third and only a, an allowance from the Pope would make it happen. Well, Pope Leo X and Albert were both businessmen and they agreed on a price. The problem was Albert was rich in land, but he was not rich in cash. Enter the monk, Johann Tetzel. Tetzel devised a plan involving indulgences, an indulgence sale, which guaranteed the buyer, the purchaser of the indulgence, which was a certificate handed to you, less time in purgatory if you purchased that, or you could, um, you could purchase your loved ones less time in purgatory. Indulgences were pardons for sin. Tetzel took advantage of that practice, and in order, um, he did that in order to finance Albert's goals. Uh, uh, Tetzel's campaign even had little uh, ditties like a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And with the Pope's blessings, as long as half of the proceeds went to the Sistine Chapel, you had a record indulgence sale where people could purchase forgiveness past, present, and future. No repentance required. Well, Luther could be silent no more. And on All Saints' Day, the merits of the saints were about to be offered in Wittenberg. And so on All Saints' Eve, October 31st, 1517, he nailed 95 theses to the Wittenberg Cathedral in hopes of just procuring a debate over the issue of buying salvation. Luther had begun to see the erroneous teaching of the church that God gives grace to those who do their best. Luther recognized that that teaching assumed that a person is morally neutral at best and perhaps naturally good. And yet Luther saw that the real problem is the human heart. Self-love shapes everything we do. So even if we do something noble, Luther taught, even those noble acts are motivated by self-love. And as a result... Our best can never be nothing than just the fruit of self-love. If we're going to have a right standing with God, Luther began to see, it requires an alien righteousness. Now, what did he mean by an alien righteousness? It means a righteousness from outside of us. We don't have the capacity to earn or achieve that kind of righteousness with our hearts enslaved to self-love. We need a perfect righteousness. The righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps no text more clearly demonstrates that than our present text, Romans chapter 4. Because as we're going to see, the two most important figures in Israel's history 
Abraham and David, they themselves needed that alien righteousness. That's the point Paul is bringing out. In fact, we see in the first five verses, Abraham, the first witness of this need for grace. Look with me in verse 1. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Notice the word then. This tells us that he is continuing, extending the argument from Romans 3. Romans 3 being one of the great passages on the gospel. I would encourage you to, to memorize Romans 3, 21 to 31. That would be a wonderful project for you and your family. In Romans 3, we could summarize it this way. God in Christ justifies us through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ And it's his all-sufficient work alone that can bring justification to a sinner. You could summarize Romans 3, 21 and following with this notion. We are are justified by God's free grace. What is justification? It is an act of God's free grace. It's an event. It's an act. It's a one-time act or event. It's it's an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons us of all of our sins. That is, he forgives us of all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. That is, perfectly righteous, but only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's justification. That is what he has been laying out in Romans 3. And now he's going to address the case of Abraham. Abraham is the constitutional father of the Jews. He is to the Jews what Thomas Jefferson is to us in America. And he is going to show that Abraham's spiritual biography doesn't invalidate his claim. Paul, are you a cult leader? Are you teaching something new? Paul is going to show no. This has always been the way of salvation and justification. If it can be shown that Abraham was saved not because of anything he did, and he is the best of men, then the case is closed. So Paul is asking what Abraham had discovered according to his ability to be right with God. That's what he's asking in verse 1. If we read... In verses 2 and following, that it's according to Abraham's spiritual resume, then we're about to have a bad day. Why? Because who in here wants Abraham to be the standard for our salvation? Every single one of us in here would fall short of that standard for getting into heaven. Notice with me in verse 2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If Abraham earns the commendation of God by his works, then Abraham can boast. He can go to the mirror and sing, How great thou art. But Paul then makes the very telling addition... In the second part of verse 2, but not before God. Abraham is no exception 
to the conclusion that Paul has laid out in Romans 3, where he says, no one can be justified by the works of the law. But by the law comes the knowledge of sin. Abraham is no exception to that. You see, many Jews in that day, during the second temple Judaism period, many Jews believed that Abraham was an example of someone who was justified because of his righteous works and acts. And in particular, his circumcision in the event in Genesis 22, where he lays his son Isaac up on the altar. Of course, James picks that up. And he is showing us that Abraham was ju- he's justified before men by his works. His, his works reflected that he had saving faith. But that's not what these Jews believed. They believed that he earned the commendation of God by his works. For instance, in 1 Maccabees, in chapter 2, it says, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested? And it was reckoned to him as righteousness? That was the view of many Jews of that day. He was found faithful when he was tested by God and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so for Paul's gospel to have credibility with those with a background in the synagogue, he has to show that Abraham was in actuality justified by faith. And so what Paul's going to do here, he's going to appeal to the Jewish scriptures, in particular Genesis 15, verse 6. Look with me in verse 3. In verse 3 he says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that text is picked up, in fact, three times in the New Testament. You see it here, you see it in Galatians 3, 6, you see it in James chapter 2. Genesis 15, 6 He believed God. That is the first time the word believe is found in the Bible. And it comes in the context of Abraham because of his faith having this righteousness that was not his. Abraham in Romans is our example of faith. In James, he is our example of works. And in Hebrews, he is our example of perseverance. In other words, Abraham is the classic man of God. He is the standard bearer, if you will. And yet he needed an alien righteousness. Even Abraham needed a perfect righteousness that he himself could not achieve. He needed the righteousness of the one who would come. You see, in the context of Genesis 15, God promises Abraham an heir, a a seed, an offspring, a son. And this son will be the very one that extends back to the promise of Genesis 3.15 who would crush the seed of the serpent. Through this son, all the nations would be blessed. Through this son, you would have a family that stems from Abraham that is as numerous as the stars of the sky. And Abraham recognized and trusted in this promise. In other words, he was trusting in his far-off son. He was justified the same way we were. And prior to this, Abraham was likely a moon worshiper. 
He worshipped likely because he was from Ur of the Chaldeans, the moon god Nana, N-A-N-N-A. And so his justification, Paul says, had nothing to do with his inherent righteousness. It was all of grace. Note the word here, counted. It was counted to him. That's a bookmaking term. By counting Abraham's faith as righteousness, God was accepting Abraham as fit for a relationship with him. I mean, that is glorious news. And this in contrast to the idea that he laid out in verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. In fact, now in verse 4, he's going to reflect again on the implications of verse 2. Look with me in verse 4. Now, to the one who works. Now, that is, what, what does he mean here? To the one who works in order to earn and curry favor with God. To the one who works. And by the way, every religion in the world teaches this. This is the natural default position of fallen man. We have the law of God written on our hearts. And because our hearts are depraved and sinful, we misapply the law. And we believe that naturally we believe that uh, we are going to earn and curry favor with God by our obedience. He says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you want to earn your way to God, you will get the, the paycheck you deserve Based on your works. That's what Paul is saying. And now Paul is going to apply this to us. To him who works, his wage is not like Abraham's. In other words, it's not reckoned as grace, but as a paycheck. It's what's due him. So on payday, your boss does not come to you. And say, I want to grant you, give you a token of my appreciation. He doesn't say to you, I I want to give you a gift uh, because I love you. No. Your paycheck was earned. And therefore, your paycheck does not humble you. It does not soften you to your boss's mercy. In fact... If your boss told you that your paycheck was a gift of his mercy, it would offend you because you earned that paycheck. But in contrast to the works in verse 4, notice in verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is the most scandalous verse in the Bible. Now, when I say scandalous, I don't mean it in a derogatory way. But to appreciate what I just said, or rather even what Paul has just said, think about Proverbs 17, 15, where it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, the writer of Hebrews says that to justify the wicked is an abomination to God. And yet here, Paul is saying, and I might add Paul, who would have been very aware of Proverbs 17, 15, 
and who would have also recognized that what he is writing is not in conflict with Proverbs 17, 15. What's involved here in verse 5 is a new application to this doctrine of justification. You see, the Old Testament, Proverbs 17, 15, uh, and Exodus 23 is another example, is the declaration of an existing situation. To justify someone who's not uh, worthy of justification is an abomination to the Lord. That is a declaration of an existing situation. But Paul has in mind here a standing changing act. A status changing act. The believer in Jesus is given a new status. And this is majorly and massively counterintuitive to us. That's why if you are evangelizing someone and you ask them about their view of heaven and how one gets to heaven, virtually 99.9% of the time, they will tell you because I try to do right. I try to be a good person. What Paul is saying here is completely counterintuitive. Of course, our intuition is fallen. That's why it's counterintuitive to us. Because most of what we have, we've earned. The house you have, you likely earned that through a hard-working job. You have earned your, your retirement. You earned your letter jackets when you were in school. Most of what you have, you've earned. And if you've been... For all of your life, saving up currency that in the end God will not honor. Thinking, he's going to be pleased with me. I never hurt anybody. I never committed adultery. I never murdered anyone. I never stole from anyone. I even helped out when there were needs in the neighborhood and in the city and the state. If you've been, for all of your life, saving up that kind of currency that God in the end will not honor, that's a bad deal. And why doesn't he honor it? Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our righteousness is filthy rags to God. Let me give you a crude illustration to to kind of uh, picture that. Imagine you have, and I looked it up this week, Some of the most costly gems in the world. A red diamond ring. Do you know that's an expensive thing? If if someone gave me a red diamond ring, I don't think that would look expensive to me. Or a black opal. Two of the most costly uh, gemstones in the world. Someone were to give you a, a red diamond ring or a black opal. And you were to say to them, you know what? Thank you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shine your shoes Every week for a month. Well, that just wouldn't work, would it? Why? Because that red diamond ring, that black opal ring, is worth more than a few shoe shines. In fact, if a person gives you a red diamond ring in exchange for your shoe shines, you have devalued that ring. God doesn't give justification as a result of our works any more than we would give a red diamond ring 
for a shoe shine. Think of this term here, ungodly. Romans 4, 5. What does it mean to be ungodly? The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Romans 1.18. He goes on and describes what ungodliness is in Romans 1.21. He says, although they knew God as God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they grateful. In other words, ungodly is someone who does not live for God. Ungodly means someone who does not live to treasure and honor and esteem the name of God. God is his butler, perhaps. God is his means to an end. But God is not the end itself. That's what it means to be ungodly. Who is he talking about here? In the context, he's talking about Abraham. And David. He's going to mention David as well, right? He's also talking about those he's laid out in Romans 1 to 3. In Romans 1, 18 to 132, he describes the pagan who's never heard the gospel. Someone asked me this week in the class, what about those who've never heard the gospel? I said, what about them? God has revealed himself to them in the created order and, and he's exchanged that. They've exchanged that truth for a lie. It's exactly what they would do with the gospel if they heard the gospel. He says there's none righteous. Romans 2, 1 to 16, he refers to, how about the moralist? The guy who, who's, a, who's a pretty moral fellow compared to everyone else. Paul says they're under the judgment of God as well. Well, how about the Jew? Romans 2, 17, all the way to Romans 3, 9. Unrighteous, under the judgment of God. The conclusion, Paul says, there's none righteous. There's none who seeks after God. In fact, there's only one seeker in the Bible. It's Jesus. Who came to seek and to save that which is lost. So he's describing all of humanity. He's describing us. That's who he's describing here. He's not talking about some special class of sinner. Who's the ungodly in this text? It's you and me. If you perceive yourself as an upright individual. An upstanding citizen. Who does not need forgiveness for the... Mistakes you commit every once in a while. Who does not need a perfect righteousness because your righteousness will do. Who does not need a substitute. Who will die on the cross for you. This verse will not move you. In verse 5. Except maybe to anger. Imagine you have had an in- an argument with your spouse. And your spouse perceives that he or she has done nothing wrong. And that may very well be the case. You will not help that situation. If you go to your spouse and say, you know what, honey, I forgive you. Your spouse does not want to hear that you forgive him or her. Your spouse wants to hear, you're exonerated. You are innocent. You did nothing wrong. And that's the dilemma for someone who has a low view of sin. But if you see yourself as a lawbreaker, and that lawbreakers deserve the judgment of God, Paul has just made your day. Because what Paul says in Romans 4 5 is this. There is no sin and there is no sinner. 
beyond the grace of God. That is good news. And he doesn't save us because we changed our ways. That's a very important point that that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. He doesn't save us because we changed our ways. He saves us by changing our status. In 1520, when Luther was, you know, spearheading this reformation, a, a reformation he didn't desire, by the way. He was just wanting to, to purify the teaching in the church. And all hell broke loose on him. He came out with three books. He was a writing machine. With all his health problems, his insomnia, it is remarkable. What, what a genius this man was and what a man of faith. He came out with these three books that progressed the Reformation. And the third of these three books was a book called The Freedom of a Christian. It wasn't the most controversial of the three, I can tell you that. The Babylonian captivity of the church was the most controversial. Read it sometime. The Freedom of a Christian was a book where he lays out the gospel and he devotes it to the Pope. He dedicates the book to the Pope. And at the heart of this book, he tells the story of a king who who marries a prostitute. Who then becomes by status a queen. It's not that she made herself queenly in her behavior in order to earn the hand of the king. She was and is wicked at heart. And yet upon the king's vows, her status changes. She is therefore simultaneously a prostitute at heart and a queen by status. And in the same way, Luther says, to use the Latin, we are, as believers, simul justice at peccator. At one and the same time, righteous and a sinner. Of course, that doesn't lead to lawless behavior. It does the opposite. Grace transforms. But that's the gospel. You don't transform in order To have favor with God. You transform because you now have favor with God in his son Jesus. Maybe there's some here today. Who's not yet a Christian. I believe there is. I have no one particular in mind. But in a crowd this large. I believe there is. And maybe your excuse is. You just don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm presently doing. In fact, if you knew the things I've done, the, the, the thoughts that I've had, the motivations that are so off course, if you knew the people I hurt, I've hurt my, my spouse, I've hurt my children, I'm a cheat, I'm lustful. And Paul would say, if you perceive yourself as ungodly, If you are ungodly, be encouraged. You're qualified to be saved. That's what he's saying in Romans 4, 5. And then he brings us to the second witness. If Abraham can't convince you, how about David? 
in keeping with the Jewish principle of establishing a truth by the presence of two or more witnesses. Look with me in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul says, let me give you another example. And he quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 to 2. Of course, if you know your Bible, you know the context of Psalm 32. That is the psalm of confession and repentance after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband Uriah the Hittite killed. So David is a, an adulterer and a murderer and he covers it. He sits on it. He sits on it for a long time, in fact, because when Nathan comes to him to rebuke him, the baby had already been born that was conceived with Bathsheba. So he's been sitting on this for at least nine months, perhaps even a few years. This should speak to all of us because nearly if not all of us carry burdens of past sinful actions. And David knew the terrible burden of sin. And he sought to cover it. He sought to cover it, but he could not cover it. And it wasn't until he knew that his sin was covered by God himself that he was freed from the guilt of his sin. The question that would arise here, are you suffering from the guilt of your past? Are you suffering from the guilt of your present? If so, you need to experience what David experienced. He says three things out of this. The first thing we see in verse 7, his lawless deeds were forgiven. That word forgiven, it means to send away. In fact, it was a word used in the Gospels where it said that Jesus sent the crowds away. Same word. We're not able to do that ourselves. To send our lawless deeds away. When we punish a crime, it's always by punishing the offender, correct? But God, in His Son Jesus, punishes the crime as our substitute and takes it away. That's what David had experienced. You say, well, Jesus hadn't come yet. David was looking to the one who would come. There was a forward looking for the Messiah. Notice, secondly, his sin was covered. Verse 7. His sin was covered. This refers to the Day of Atonement. Where the priest would take the blood of the sacrificed animal. And he would cover the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Where the broken law resided. The Ten Commandments were housed in that Ark of the Covenant. We have broken God's law. And the blood of the sacrifice covered the broken law. Third, his sin wasn't counted against him. Verse 8. Why? 
Paul has already told us in Romans 3. Because his sin was counted to Jesus. That is, when Jesus went to the cross, our sin, that is every person who would believe in him, was counted to him, was credited to him, imputed to him. He didn't become a sinner on the cross. But he made him who knew no sin become sin for us. God treated him as if he had committed every sin that we have committed. Past, present, and future. And God judged the sin in the substitute. That's why David's sin was not counted against him. His sin of murder. His sin of adultery. And all the other sins. Indeed, for everyone who, like David, recognizes their sin and trust in the substitute. You can say, with this glorious statement that was written around 125, 150 AD, letter Diognetius, he himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the Holy One, For transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible. Who's he describing? Us. The immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other things were capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. What is the exchange? We receive his righteousness. He takes our sin. Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation. That the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one. And that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Isn't that not good news? Let's close this out. This text applies to both believers and unbelievers. First of all, for those who are present that are believers. How do we know the truth from this text? Still ignite you. How do we know that? They still stir you. First of all, it brings assurance. In fact, the, one of the priests of the, the Counter-Reformation, a, a man whose last name was Bellarmine, we have a school named after him. He said the great heresy of the Protestant Reformation is the doctrine of assurance. And John would say, it's biblical to have assurance. I write these things to you so that you will know that you have eternal life. The doctrine of justification brings assurance because the doctrine of justification is not based on my merit. It's not based on my performance. It's based on the performance of another, Jesus Christ. Secondly, it destroys guilt. If you are justified, then the guilt you feel... Is phantom guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there may be a subjective aspect of guilt. Where you are 
right now knowingly acting in a sinful way. And the Spirit of God uses that to bring about repentance. Because repentance is certainly one of the evidences of salvation. Thirdly, it abolishes perfectionism. Man, many of us are perfectionists in areas. This takes away the performance ethos. I don't have to perform. My identity is perfect in the Son of God. I can't improve my identity. I can't improve my worth. I can't improve my status by my performance. Finally, it excites, it ignites service and mission. How do you know the truths of this text have taken hold? You're a person of mission. You see yourself as a missionary everywhere God calls you. The workplace, your home, the neighborhood. In fact, that's why Romans was written. Paul says he writes Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26 for the obedience of faith. Everything he says is in order to provoke the obedience of faith. Friday, I was flying from Haiti to Miami. And it was bumpy. But there was a non-Christian sitting next to me, so I couldn't show fear. I was like the duck, you know, who looked still above the waters and below the waters. There was some serious paddling. But he was a Haitian who was the chief marketing officer for the leading beer company in Haiti. And he said, what are you doing in Haiti? And I told him, he's put the ball on the tee. He said, you know what's remarkable to me about Protestants? He said... So many, that's what he called us. So many Protestants come over here and serve us. He said, I'm so grateful for that. Why is it that Protestants are so serving? Thank you, Lord. I gave him the gospel of grace. And I said, grace begets giving. Because when grace takes hold, the knee-jerk response is gratitude and giving. We give ourselves away for that truth, for that God. In fact, after Martin Luther's three books came out in 1520, the Pope demanded that he recant within 60 days. Luther took that summons to recant and he burned it. Along with a lot of theology books and the canons of law of the church. And from that moment on, Luther faced the burning at the stake. From that moment on, Luther's life was in danger. He lived under the threat of death and he lived in exile. But he persevered. And during that time, Seth said, 1529, the age of 46 years old, he penned, along with many other hymns, A mighty fortress is our God. He did not write that hymn because he had a publishing deal. He wrote it as an act of worship. Recognizing that in the midst of danger and death threats. A mighty fortress is our God. He wrote many books during that time and preached many sermons. All because he was fueled by the truth of this text. This also has a word to unbelievers. This is a text that speaks to unbelievers. Let me give you 
some bad news and good news from this text. Bad news first. If Abraham and David needed justification, so do you. If Abraham and David needed a perfect righteousness, so do you. How much more do we? But here's the good news. God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. He forgives them. He accepts them as righteous in his sight because of his son Jesus. In fact, this text really speaks to two types of ungodly. You have those who are self-righteous. You say, well, I don't consider myself self-righteous. You, well, if you are depending on your goodness and morality to curry favor with God, that is self-righteousness. And this text says, and the cross says, your righteousness will not stand in that day. It also speaks to those who are so guilt-ridden, they could not believe, cannot believe that God would ever save them. How could God ever forgive them for what they've done? This text tells us, and the cross tells us that he will. He will. That's the gospel that stirred Martin Luther and led to the Reformation. And it's also the gospel that can lead to your personal Reformation. Let's pray.